traditionally at this time of year, Lumpur Cha or Jananam would encourage the monks to put more effort into the Tudonga practices, 13 ascetic practices, some of it which we practice maybe regularly anyway. In our tradition, the way Lumpur Cha set up the monasteries and the training, it's very common for monks. <coughs> Most of the time, we're living in the forest anyway. It's one of the Tudonga practices. But at this time of year, maybe we move out into a grot on the ground or in a platform, on a platform under a tree. Another one of the practices. We eat in a bowl. When we take on the Tudonga practices, maybe we just determine to eat everything in the bowl. And at one sitting, if you finish that bit of that food for the, at that time in your meal, if you get up, then that's it. You don't eat another anything more for the day. So you limit to what you eat in one sitting and in your bowl, one container, one vessel. So no extra dishes or drinks or breakfasts or anything like that, just keeping everything very simple. Or might take on the Nesajika water, particularly on the full moon, half moon days, undertaking not to use the lying down posture, only to sit or walk or stand for the whole evening, whole night. Or maybe simplify our use of the robes. When the weather's warm, just keep practice down to the use of the three robes and minimize any extra cloth that we wear. Lumpur Cha reminded us that we can practice Tudong, which has now become associated with wandering and traveling from place to place, often not even walking, often taking lifts and so on. But he said you can practice Tudonga in the monastery, especially if the monastery is a forest and there's a fair amount of untouched forest, you can practice Tudonga in the, in the monastery if you wish, by setting up in a quiet spot under a tree, just simplifying your lifestyle. Because the purpose of the Tudonga practices are to really focus the mind on the development of mindfulness and wisdom and developing supportive qualities. Nekama Bharami, just renunciation of certain comforts and things that make us uh, tend to indulge, which might take away our mindfulness, bring up more greed, more aversion. 
Nekamabharami, Kanti Bharami, in learning to pr practice and develop more patience, more resilience to conditions. If you stay in the forest, you, you feel the cold at night. You might feel the heat in the day. You're exposed to the insects and the creatures of the forest, the discomforts that might be associated with living in the forest. And you do have to develop patience, learn to put up with a certain amount of discomfort. But with a purpose, it's not an end in itself just to make us feel miserable. The purpose is to develop patience, simplify our practice so that we can really focus on the mind, training the mind. And our tradition has come from this, from the Tudonga practices. Whether we keep them all or just some or all the time or just occasionally, they're tools that are available for us to use. There's one time in later life the Buddha mentioned to Venerable Mahakasapa that he'd been keeping the Tadonga practices and certain ascetic practices like going Bindabhata in very poor areas, receiving very poor food and few requisites. <coughs> he'd been doing that all his bhikkhu life. And the Buddha said, maybe, Kasapa, it's time you had a break, you're older now, maybe you could uh, relax some of these practices you follow. And Kasapa refused, he said, no, I wish to keep them up. Even though he was already enlightened, it wasn't as if he needed these practices to purify any kilesas now, they're already pure. He said, for future generations, uh, may I keep them up as an example. And you see some of our teachers do that. Rumpo Man, going Bindabhat, almost to the end of his life, still living very simply. Many of the teachers keep up certain practices, even though you might say they've gone beyond those practices, they don't really need to, but they might keep them up as an example for other bhikkhus, to show them how to practice. This is part of Sangha life. We always have an awareness of our relationship to other bhikkhus as well as ourselves. It's, we're not individual hermits, <coughs> even though sometimes we spend time on our own, <coughs> on retreat. We have a relationship to other bhikkhus. We know each other, we see each other. So part of our lifestyle, you know, we're helping others by putting effort into our own practices, especially the more difficult practices. It's not for increasing our conceit or attachment to views, another danger the Buddha pointed out. We're not, say, learning to be strict about food or sleeping out in the forest or staying up all night meditating as a way of just boosting our ego or 
trying to display special qualities to others to show off in any way or to impress the lay people it should be done out of a genuine interest to learn and interest to train ourselves whether other people know or not in some practices we can take on maybe nobody ever will know about them we don't have to write about them in our biography we can just do them as a way of training the mind and be on guard so that we don't become conceited or look down on others who maybe don't practice in the same way as ourselves but when you think of your teachers and you think of Ajahn Chah and our other teachers it can be inspiring to put forth extra effort to stay up all night or to camp out in the forest, take on different practices. And we say at the very least you gain patience, but probably you gain more than that. If you stay in the forest, in a grot, with very little to distract you, you're really the conditions force you to practice mindfulness. If you wake up because it's cold or there's some noise of an animal nearby, yeah, it's a chance to be mindful in the middle of the night. Or maybe just get up and meditate when you might normally prefer to sleep. Or if you're in the forest, you, you've got nothing to turn to to distract you. Maybe you don't have any books to read or any, anything to listen to, well, you're just there with yourself, so you have to keep bringing attention back to your own mind, learning to watch your mind in different situations and put more effort into your sitting and walking meditation. Maybe that's all you do other than go to the toilet or do some exercise or something, sweep your path. You might just do sitting and walking especially if the weather is conducive. And you learn to see your own moods and transcend them through putting effort into the practice. Maybe in the beginning we have a lot of uncertainty about the practice, uncertainty about our own ability to practice, whether we can do it, whether it's worth it, uncertainty about what Magapala might be, what, you know, how we should be practicing, how are we going to make this mind more peaceful, how are we going to develop insight. And there's some doubt and uncertainty that we have in the beginning that's just to be expected, it's not unusual, and we can just practice with it by just putting it onto one side and just knowing it. If you're beginning your practice, then it's not unreasonable to doubt about whether you'll ever experience jhana or mangapala nibbana what they involve what insight really is like and all these kind of doubts and the curiosity of the mind and it's quite normal we have to just accept we don't know we haven't practiced enough so we just put it on one side the other kind of doubt, the more harmful doubt, is the doubt that stops you 
putting your attention on a meditation object. So as you're sitting, you literally don't put your attention on the breath or on Bhutto or any other meditation object because the doubt straight away has taken your mind away. And you think, sit there thinking, wondering, you know, why am I doing this? What's the point? What's this? What's that? That's the kind of harmful doubt that's a hindrance that we have to be aware of because that's really undermining because it doesn't, <clears throat> you don't even get to start meditating with your mind, even if your body is sitting there or it's walking along the Jongrom path. <clears throat> that kind of doubt is clearly going to prevent the arising of mindfulness, the arising of samadhi, the arising of insight. Because your mind is just not putting any attention anywhere, it's just wandering around with different thoughts. So that kind of doubt is very undermining. We have to be careful, be aware of the harmful doubts and quickly establish awareness of them and, and teach ourselves to let them go. Recognize them for what they are, recognize the damage they do. Ajahn Chah said, really, we're aiming in our practice to develop what in Thai they call gamlang, which means like strength or energy. It might relate to the virya bharami, virya indriya, virya bala. Virya means you know, persistence, that willingness to keep putting effort into the practice into the meditation, sitting, to walking, into training the mind to pay attention to a meditation object, a gamatana. Persistent effort means having a strength of mind and it comes through sitting, walking, just being willing to do that. You might say willing to put in the hours, willing to set aside other less important things and sit and walk even when we're tired, to keep sitting, walking. If we're exhausted and we sleep, well, to get up again and do it again in the morning. It's that persistent effort. Ajahn Chah said this is what we call a gamlang. Somebody who has gamlang, me gamlang, has strength, has energy in the practice. They're somebody who will experience the fruits they will start to experience the mind calming down after time. How long, we don't know. We don't need to doubt about that either. But if we put effort into the sitting and the walking, we're going to know our own mind better. We're going to know how to focus it on the meditation object better. And the more we do it, then it becomes a strength of mind. It becomes something that becomes very prominent in the mind, you start to be aware of your mind in the present moment more and more in every posture, particularly through sitting and walking meditation. In the beginning we <clears throat> rely on externals. We, when you're close to a teacher, you tend to do it more. When other monks are around and they say there's a meeting, we tend to be more diligent. When we're on our own, we tend to be more relaxed. No one sees us, 
or nobody seems to care around us well we might let our minds go thinking all over the place might sleep more, talk more read more, whatever in the beginning it's like that but really somebody who has gamlang who has this strength of practice they're somebody who doesn't need other people to tell them or remind them to practice they know it's useful they know it's worth it especially when you're out in the forest that's what you need that willingness to to practice to train to get up and sit or walk if it's raining you can still sit if it's cold you can still sit if it's cold maybe you walk and warm yourself up but you're willing to do it even though nobody sees you maybe the devas or the animals see you we don't know but you see yourself you know yourself it's worth doing after a while you go beyond the doubt simply because you've done it enough you start to see some benefit the mind starts to calm down you experience more peace less doubt and more continuity of effort means less sleepiness less doubt and you're able to contemplate better as well you're able to contemplate because the mind is calm it's this relationship between samatha and vipassana lumpo cha even though occasionally he would explain what samatha is vipassana is more often than not he wouldn't because it's the, it's the one mind we're training and the two practices support each other and kind of flow into each other so sometimes we're practicing samatha, what you might call samatha sometimes we're practicing what you might call vipassana but he didn't tie it down too much because sometimes we get too stuck on the pariyati and the, the structure, the form that we've received from the suttas, the vinaya and so on that can actually be limiting because we keep trying to match our experience to the books, to the concepts. In the way Ajahn Chah taught, if you read his teachings and you listen to those who live with him, you know, there's a certain fluidity. And we have that conviction, that trust that he was a, an enlightened teacher. So he wouldn't let his mind be tied down and just emphasize one technique he would um, be teaching in a, a broad way and obviously he emphasized in the beginning of the practice a lot we he emphasized the sila, the vinaya as a necessary foundation and every aspect of the vinaya is something we have to learn and use but then as far as meditation techniques you know, he talked talk more about training the mind but obviously you use techniques to train the mind but he wouldn't tie, tie, tie himself or others down because sometimes different techniques work for different people some people use the breath, some people use butho, some people use butho and the breath some people use maranānusati, contemplate death and so on these are samatha objects and sometimes we are just you might say practicing samatha calming the mind, developing mindfulness then he also talked an awful lot about contemplation and sometimes contemplation leads to practice and you're contemplating your own state of mind 
you might call it jitanupasana. You're just observing the state of mind, whether it's peaceful or not, whether it's got greed or anger, delusion or not. And just by observing the mind, contemplating it, or you see the impermanent nature of mental states, moods. You used to say when you are calm, then if you're not sure what to do, what to contemplate, we'll always come back to the body. First foundation of mindfulness, kaya gada sati. In the beginning, this is still just concepts, images, words, ideas. You're sitting there or walking and you go through the 32 parts or the four elements and you start with the concepts but when your mind does become more peaceful, settled, it becomes still. If you experience some samadhi, then the words, the concepts fade away and it's just knowing. Knowing without having to label everything. And this is why the relationship between samatha and vipassana is so vital and why, why both are so vital to training the mind to actually understand what the Buddha taught. We have to get to the point where we can set aside all the concepts, the verbalizations, the ideas, the perceptions that we normally are hooked onto. Get to that point where the mind can just put everything down, even though we're still receiving the fruits of our karma and we're seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. Thoughts and ideas pop up. We get to that point where there is stillness of mind, where the samatha has brought the mind to a place of stillness and we can contemplate and see the transient nature of thoughts, feelings, see the suffering of them, even the pleasant feelings that the mind craves so often through the senses. Just see the suffering of pleasure that doesn't last and the longing for pleasure when we don't have it. See the aversion to pain, the relief when the pain goes, the fear, the aversion when it returns. And again on the paper you call it Vaitananupasana. It's contemplating, contemplating the body, contemplating feeling, contemplating the mind. Sometimes Dhammanupasana, contemplating the Four Noble Truths maybe how observing the process where suffering arises. On paper it's the Paticca Samubhada, observing sense contact, giving rise to Vaitana, Vaitana, being a cause for craving, being a cause for attachment and becoming. Or observing the, the opposite, the way Niroda arises, the cessation when we apply mindfulness and we apply and develop Bhavana Maya Panya, we're seeing the cessation of craving and attachment with the presence of mindfulness and insight into Anicca Dukkha Anatta. Then the mind releases that clinging and craving to its experience, stops clinging and reacting to the Vedana, stops identifying with the body as self, stops identifying with every thought as self. So there's a release and you get a cessation going towards Niroda, letting go, relinquishment. You might call this Dhammanupasana, 
observing how craving attachment arises and conditions the mind and then observing how it ceases and how the mind is liberated from it. And sometimes we do that as well. Sometimes you might begin a meditation session with Dhammanupassana, just contemplating the Four Noble Truths. And then as you become more calm, then you be develop maybe just one samatha object, the breath, or the recollection of death. And then maybe you contemplate again once the mind is calm. You contemplate, maybe contemplate back on the body. You've reflected on the unattractiveness of the body, the different parts, the four elements. Maybe you get to the point where you just contemplate the lack of self in the body. It's not a self. It's not correct to identify with this body as a self because it's made up of four elements. They come together, they change, they break apart. We get old, we get sick, we die. When the mind is still and you drop the concepts where well, you can contemplate in that way and just see body as empty of self. And that habitual identification with body as self it drops away at that time. Maybe just moments of insight. Maybe not yet fully letting go, but it's insight that really sticks and you get more and more become clear on this body is just not the source of happiness and it's not something to be clung to. Maybe just seeing the fearfulness, you know, the frightening nature of upadana, of attachment. And when we do cling to the body, cling to our moods and thoughts with a sense of self, frightening because it constantly produces more suffering to us, for us. If you cling to that which is inherently impermanent, it's bound to bring you suffering. You're bound to feel disappointed when you can't hold on to pleasure, disappointed when you meet with more pain, discomfort, disappointed when things that you love disappear from you, The more you contemplate, the more this identification with the sense of self fades. Maybe one day it just fades to the point where you just know, no longer having to read about it, think about it, contemplate it, the mind just knows that this body is not a self, it doesn't belong to you, it's not something you can own or have. And all that that brings with it a sense of peace with the different conditions, the internal conditions, you know, feelings and pleasure and pain, even indifferent feeling, you know, it doesn't last, it's nothing to be clung, clung to. And then all the external experiences of the world, you know, the pleasure and pain of the world and the happiness of the world, the gain, the praise, the status, the loss of all that, mind just knows that this is all impermanent, not to be clung to itself. And Lumpur Cha used to say, the worldly dhammas there are kind of a measurement, our standard for reflecting back on our practice. And this is often where you gain more conviction in what the Buddha taught and the path of practice and your doubts really start to disappear. So when you see how you no longer 
react to the worldly dhammas, even unpleasant experiences, you know, pain of sickness or injury, the pain of other people criticizing us or not being the way we want, not getting what we want, doesn't matter because it's all impermanent anyway and it's all not self. You know, these worldly experiences teach us and they are just pointing out to us that what the Buddha was teaching was correct. So when we notice that, then the conviction, the faith in what the Buddha taught, the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha grows because we know it works. It knows, we know it brings us peace. Whatever anyone else says doesn't matter. Like when I was a young monk, I asked one teacher, I said, what is it then when the mind goes beyond doubt, you know, drops with chikitya, he said, well, it's like you made a bowl stand. In those days, we all used to make bowl stands in our first rains. You make a bowl stand, cut the bamboo, you um, carve it and shape it, and then you link all the sticks together with string and bits of rattan. Takes a while. You do that job, then you've got a bowl stand. Doesn't matter whether it looks good or not, you've done that bowl stand. Whatever anyone else comes along and says about it, doesn't matter, you've done the bowl stand. You know you've done it because you did it. You were there. If someone else comes along and says, that's not your bowl stand, or doesn't belong to you or it's a good bowl stand or a bad bowl stand, doesn't matter. You've done the bowl stand and you know you've made it. It's like that, when doubt goes away, it's because it doesn't really matter what anyone else says or whatever these, the worldly dhammas bring to you anymore because the mind is clear and it doesn't identify with the body as a self or feelings as self, thoughts as self. Maybe karma is not finished yet, it's still pleasure and pain conditioning thoughts of delight and aversion. So it's not like you're finished with the world, but you know the, way, the world the way it is enough that the mind is no longer doubting. You've done that, you've got to the point where the mind sees and knows that. So whatever anyone else says doesn't matter so much. And then you become your own teacher, even though you still respect and have teachers, and you can still receive teachings. But at the same time, you're also teaching yourself. What Ajahn Chah said is like, you get to the point where the mind is knowing the Dhamma through experience. It's like that you're hearing a Dhamma talk just through your own experience. What you see, what you hear, you smell, you taste, you touch, becomes a Dhamma teaching. Your ayatana, your internal sense bases and their external objects become your teachers. And you're seeing anicca dukkha anatta in your experience and the mind is reminding you of it. You're just knowing that. Obviously, if you're not an arahant, there's still moments of delusion, moments of kalesa arising. But they hardly delude the mind for very long because the mind knows they're just an ichidukha anatta, not to be clung to. So this is how we go beyond doubts in the practice, it's through the practice. 
through developing the practice, our experience shows us, proves to us that what the Buddha, what Lumpucha were teaching is true. The mind knows for itself, so it can't doubt. Obviously, you can always still be curious and still be willing to learn and look and investigate more. But there's also things you've learned that you just know it becomes part of the mind, part of your experience. So tonight is uh, the one practice, so it's a good night to put forth effort into our sitting and walking. Those of you staying out in the forest will also take the opportunity to put more effort into your sitting and walking. You don't need a lot, you stay in the forest, you just need a few meters to walk meditation. You know, tr maybe try a few things, you try walking without a light in the middle of the night, you know, midnight, try walking in the forest back and forth but without any light. See if that wakes you up or makes you more mindful. Try a few different things, sitting, walking, this is the time while we're young enough, healthy enough, we should put effort into our practice because it's only going to get harder as we get older. So anyway, I'll leave these for your reflection tonight. <laughs>